0: These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, where Eleazar, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded, by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in, with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses, they allotted the land. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kinozite, said to him, "'You know what the Lord said to Moses, "'the man of God in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. "'I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, "'sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, "'and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. "'But my brothers who went up with me "'made the heart of the people melt.' Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these forty five years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with fortified cities It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenazite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron, formerly Was Kiriath Arba? Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the Lord had and the land had rest from war.
1: Man, it's almost been thirty years uh, now. I realized this week I was pastoring a small rural church in uh, North Florida, in the the major metropolis of Bostwick, which is near the other metropolis, Palatka. That's probably the largest place near, and most of you don't know where that's at in Florida. But uh, in our church, we had, in our church and in our community, we kind of had a minor celebrity. Uh, We called him Captain Jack, and this was not Captain Jack Sparrow. This was before all that. Uh, He was Captain Jack Gilmore. Uh, My first exposure to Captain Jack was he was in the hospital, and I was asked to go visit him. I was new pastor in the church, and I went, and there's this guy, and I think at that time he was about 98, 99 years of age, and he was having his gallbladder taken out. Now, you think, okay, where's this going? But you gotta understand, he was in World War I, and he was gassed by the Germans, and this guy was so tough that it took 80 years for that gas to destroy his gallbladder, okay? This was one tough guy. Uh, He was a a high medal winner in World War I for his bravery and courage. After the war, he was a Texas Ranger, While he was in the hospital, he shows me a scar that went from his groin, a knife scar that went from his groin all the way up to his carotid, where he was gutted like a fish by a criminal and left to bleed out, and he held on to his carotid artery and kept it from bleeding. I mean, he was just tough. He had bullet holes and knife wounds, and if that wasn't enough, he went into World War II, and he started out again on the ground, but then they started the Army Air Corps, and he went to the air. He flew as a fighter pilot in World War II and flew again in Korea, right? I mean, this guy was in World War I, World War II, and Korea, what a life. And I remember uh, one time after he was out of the hospital, he calls me up at the church. He goes, hey, pastor, I I got something I'm trying to do out in my front yard. Could you come over and give me a hand? I get there. And he's got a pine tree stump in his front yard. And he's got axes and pickaxes and shovels. And he says, could you help me get this thing out? Now, listen, I'm 30 years old. I'm, I'm at the height. I'm an athlete. I'm playing basketball. I said, sure, Jack, I'll help you with this. And we get to work. And he worked me into the ground. <laughs> I am not too proud to say I had to tap out after about four or five hours in the heat. And he was still going, well, we're not done yet. You know, he was just tough, tough guy. And as, as inspiring as he is, as a, an older man, he lived, I think, to be 103, 104 years old, uh, we see an even better example in Joshua 14 of an old man showing a young man how to do it and how uh, you finish strong as a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, we left off last week in Joshua 11 with the Northern Campaign. At the end of that chapter, where Joshua and the Israelites were defeating that massive army, had chariots and horses and everything that was involved, we read in verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. And so chapter 11 and then chapter 12, where there's a list of kings that are all defeated by Joshua and Moses, this brings to a close what is known as the conquest portion of Joshua. All the stories, the big stories of war and battles are done at this point. And instead, we're entering a section from chapters 13 to 21 that have to do with the allotment of the land. So in chapter 13, you be, it begins like this, Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land. to possess." Joshua himself is probably over 100 at this point. And so he's told, "Call the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon, even all the well, that's not the and, and allot the land now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribes of manasseh and so what he does is begins the process of allowing the the tribes to come, and by way of was we'll just called a lottery, and you can read how it was carried out in the passage if you desire to. The, the The promised land is divided up by tribes, and instead of the army as a whole going from place to place and and doing battle, each tribe was responsible for driving out the remaining. Uh, Canaanites and Amorites that might live in their area. And so the focus shifts in, verse, in chapters 13 to 21 to the division and the allotment of the land for these different tribes. The word that shows up repeatedly in these nine chapters is the word inheritance. I think it appears like 50 times. Warren Wiersbe points out that the promised land does not belong to the Israelites, The promised land belongs to God. He's the owner of the land. He's the landlord. Um, The Israelites are the tenants. Uh, They've been leased the land. They're renting from God in in one respect. And, And as long as they obey God and they follow him, they get to enjoy this promised land as they live in submission to God. In chapter 14, we have Caleb and the story of how he begins to conquer his portion of the land. And in this story, there's a phrase that's repeated three times. You probably noticed it, actually, beyond his name, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Good job on that. Um, There's the, the phrase, he wholly followed the Lord. Maybe your translation said, he wholeheartedly followed the Lord, and that, that phrase is important. It, it's, it's not given to us so that we leave this morning from the church, and as we get in the car over lunch, we go, you know, I hope, and you're talking about it, you go, I hope one day I'm like Caleb. That's not the point of this phrase and this story. This story is meant to point us to our Lord and to remind all of us who are Christians and are following him that since we have a glorious inheritance that is promised to us through Christ, wholeheartedly follow him, wholeheartedly follow him. And so this morning, I want us to kind of explore, unpack this idea of what it means to wholly follow the Lord. And the very first thing that we see in the passage are some realities. We need a reality check of what does it mean to wholly follow the Lord? Maybe what does it not mean? And as you look in these opening verses, there's some, I would say, encouraging reality checks, and there's a sobering reality check. The, the encouraging reality check is uh, what I just referred to, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. Why is that mentioned? I think three times in this passage. Um, it's It's intentional. So here's what's kind of neat about this, and and it's a reality check that I think we can all appreciate. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter your background, no matter what history you have in life, God invites you to come into his family so that you can then begin to follow him. So you cannot follow the Lord until you first come into the family of God and you commit your life to him. Caleb, by natural lineage, is not an Israelite. Do you know that? No, I did not know that. Uh, it's only in the study. It's like, why does he keep saying Jephunneh the Kenizzite? His dad and his family line, his lineage, if you trace it back, grandfather, you know, father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, you would expect that he would be, he would land sooner or later where? Jacob the father of the, of the Israel, right? And the 12 tribes of Jacob. No, that's not who his great granddaddy is. The Kenizzites' great, 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 great granddaddy is Esau. He's an Edomite. And the Edomites are like, you know, in the Bible, they're enemies most of the time of the Israelites. But at some point in his family tree, somehow the, the, his family line got absorbed into The nation of Israel, the outsider, became an insider. And let's don't miss that reality this morning. If you want to follow God, you have to become an insider. You have to commit your life to Christ and begin to follow him and be joined into the family of God. It's a reality. You can't follow him if you are outside the family of God. Another, I think, encouraging aspect of this story that is a reality check, there is no such thing as a retirement age in the kingdom of God. (laughs) Isn't it awesome? Isn't it wonderful to see here that, I mean, he's 85 years old. What great encouragement this is to all of us who are constantly being pestered by the AARP. And I'm now one of them, right? They don't leave me alone. It's like, would you stop mailing me stuff for crying out loud? But what great encouragement it is in this passage to realize that some of our best work, maybe even our best work for the Lord, can be in our final years and our final decades. There is no expiration date. There is no retirement age when you think about holy following the Lord. You don't have the option if you're a follower of Christ to say, well, I'm gonna follow him until I'm 65, and now once I start collecting social security, it's all right, now it's all about me. You know, one of the things I'm thankful of here at Covenant is some of the, the strongest leaders and examples of people who are wholly following the Lord is coming from people whose hair has either turned gray or turned loose, right? <laughs> It's wonderful to see that as an intergenerational church, a multi-generational church, young people, you should be thankful that you are in a church where the old people aren't just a bunch of crotchety naysayers, but they are actively following the Lord. And for those of you who are in that age group, I want you to hear from me how much, and I'm not just saying this now because I'm getting closer, um, I want you to say, I want you to hear me say how thankful I am for all that you do in this church. How you wholly follow the Lord. Yeah. I think that's worth it. You young. And in all stages. I appreciate that. So there's two encouraging aspects, reality checks in this passage. And and then there's maybe a sobering one here. Uh, in, In verse six, Caleb is talking to Joshua. You know, and I and I wish I could think about that and we could explore that. I mean, just think about those guys and their history together. And he says in verse 6, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent us out. Now, I referred to this story last week, but 45 years before. The Israelites were on the border of the promised land. They were ready to come in. They were at Kadesh Barnea. Moses sends out 12 spies for 40 days. They go undercover from north to south, spying out the land. They come back with their report and they say, the land is unbelievable. It's so fertile. It's everything God told us it would be and we can't take it. 10 of them said, it's impossible. The cities are too strong. They have chariots and steel and horses, and they have high walls and large armies. And if that wasn't bad enough, there's giants in the land, the sons of Anakim. They are all through the land, and they're mighty warriors. I I mean, later, you're gonna see one of them. We know him as Goliath, and David and Goliath. He's a son of Anakim in that lineage. We, We can't do it, but there are two Joshua and Caleb say, absolutely not. And actually, if you go back to Numbers 13, it's Caleb who speaks up, not Joshua. He's, Joshua isn't the one that's highlighted in Numbers. It's Caleb who speaks up and goes, Oh, ho, oh, oh, ho, oh, oh. ho, ho. We can do this. We have God on our side. And he exhorts the people. And then Joshua pitches in and 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 they're and, and they're almost killed because of their report. And, and so there's a sobering reality here in this reminder. from Caleb to Joshua of where they come from, that holy following the Lord means that you will inevitably face severe obstacles and opposition. People who will uh, literally threaten your life. There can be literal challenges to your physical existence. I mean, it was not an easy task to go into the enemy stronghold for 40 days. And, And even as we think about what's going on around the world with some of our ministry partners like uh, that we've mentioned this this month with Ken and Ruth in India and the, the persecution from the militant Hindus. Holy following the Lord, there's physical, literal challenges to life and limb. Certainly there's opposition from those who do not follow the Lord. There's internal pressure. I mean, think about that moment. Go back 45 years, the, that moment when they're all standing together. Don't you know that there had to be great internal pressure on Caleb and Joshua to just, okay, maybe we, we compromise what we were going to say and, and we fit in a little bit more. You know, it's the, it's the person who stands out that gets hammered, right? And so when you're at work, when you're in the playground in school, when you're in the dormitory, it doesn't matter from kindergarten until old age, if you're the person who Running runs contrary to the dominant you know thing here comes the hammer you 're the nail right and and that 's to be expected it 's a reality check that when you wholly follow the lord you 're going to be the nail that stands up and you 're going to get pounded sooner or later here 's your reality check all the things that you hear on television from modern uh, voices about the prosperity gospel and how everything is wonderful and sunshine and rainbows and and wealth, and Rolls Royces, that is a load of hooey. It's a crock. It's what it is. The reality is that if you wholly follow the Lord, you put a target on your back. That's the reality. That's part of it. So the first thing we have to see here is the reality. And then we have the requirements in verses 10 to 12. Now, there's several ideas in these verses that speak to the, the required um, here we go, the required um, characteristics in our, uh, or the conduct in our conduct and the qualities of our character and conduct. And let me just say up front that none of us, absolutely none of us, just like Caleb himself, none of us have these qualities perfectly all the time. None of us do. Caleb didn't, Joshua didn't, great heroes of the faith didn't, we don't. Only Jesus has these qualities perfectly, but we can pray and we can ask God to pour out his grace and to do a work in our lives, and we can expect him, and by faith, to, to transform us into the image of Christ so that more and more these qualities begin to characterize our lives so that we more faithfully, wholly follow the Lord. So what are they? I would contend that the first one is patient obedience. Patient obedience. In verse 10, he says, Behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness, and now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. Caleb followed the Lord for years and years. In fact, if you go back to that passage in Numbers, I mentioned in chapter 13, they had the report. Well, chapter 14, God has had enough. And and he tells Moses, I am going to kill them all. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm done with these people. And Moses begs God, don't kill them. It'll be a reproach upon your name. And so God relents and he says, all right, I'm not going to kill them all. But everyone who's an adult, the adult generation, they're all going to die in the wilderness because of their unbelief and because of their complaining and whining and everything else powerful argument not to be a whiner right and all of this but in the middle of that death sentence God says but my servant Caleb because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it and later on he'll say something similar about Joshua But the point here is that Caleb had a Godward orientation in his heart throughout his entire life. And so what's amazing to me is that in Numbers, he's a 40-year-old man. He stands strong for God. He's center stage, a champion for God, and then nothing. It's crickets. It's crickets for like the next 45 years. And what, what happened? I mean, did he turn his back? No. He's patiently serving God. He's mentioned at the beginning of Joshua. He is involved in all of the conquest. And now once again, he is center stage and he has remained God's patient, obedient servant following wherever God leads. Think about how hard that was. During the decades, when you watch friend after friend, neighbor after neighbor die in the desert, pretty soon, you're the second oldest dude in the nation. And your friend Joshua is just a little older. That's his reality. And he waits for the promises of God to ultimately be fulfilled. What patient obedience is there? A second characteristic. Now I want to confess that I struggled with how to, I don't even know how to characterize some qualities that I think come through the the pages of Scripture here when we think about Caleb. And I thought, "What? what does this remind me of? And I was like, Lord, help me get this across. And it was interesting because my mind went back to a conversation I had I think 10 years ago with Robin Novelli, and we were having lunch during the summer, and he was telling me about a book he was reading called Grit. Remember that? Grit. So, Angela Duckworth is a, Dr. Angela Duckworth is a renowned psychologist and researcher at University of Pennsylvania, and she made it her, it has made it her life's work to study what is it that makes some people high achievers and successful, and other people are not high achievers and successful. What, What distinguishes the two? And so, she did all kinds of research and study, and she finally landed on this one word, grit, grit. And she began to study this concept of grit and she studied it for years. You can watch her TED Talks, they're very interesting. She's written some great books on it and she has the data to prove it. And she says, the single trait in our complex and wavering nature which accounts for success is grit. It is more important than natural talent natural ability, and natural intelligence. She points out that grit is the combination of perseverance and a, a passionate vision, a passionate purpose, a, something that you are passionate about. And you put perseverance and that passionate purpose together, you have grit. And both of those components are important. If you have perseverance without the passion, sooner or later you will burn out. If you have the passionate purpose without the perseverance, sooner or later you will give up when you inevitably reach the, face the obstacles that are a reality of holy following God. And so both of these things are important, but her research shows that people who have grit, these types of people, that that grit gives them a emotional, a mental, and a spiritual, even a physical toughness that allows them and helps them to succeed even in the face of adversity. And I would suggest that as you read through this story of Joshua, or of Caleb, what you are seeing here is grit personified. (laughs) See if you hear the perseverance and that passionate vision, those two components in these verses. I am still as strong today as I was. Now, this is an 85-year-old man. Now, I don't know if he's delusional. Because <laughs> you know how it is, guys. In our minds, we're still 27 years old. And that's why we pull hamstrings when we're in our 40s and 50s, right? But, but I don't know if it's true or not. But listen, I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim, the giants were there with great fortified cities. Did you catch what he just asked for? I mean, let's put it like this. If it were me and I was representing the tribe and I'm coming to Joshua and I say, hmm, we have all of these cities. Over here, we have these Smaller towns, good farmland, walls are so so, bunch of pansies. Over here, we got giants, walled cities, major cities. Hmm. Joshua, you know, I'm 85 years old. I've done my turn in the nursery. <laughs> Somebody else's turn to have the giants. I'll take care of these little villages over I'm just gonna tell you, I know myself well enough that I would have said, you know, that's good enough for me. I'll leave the giants to the young men back here, okay? Not Caleb. Do <laughs> you realize that? He says, hey, Joshua, I want the land, I want the cities that everybody said were too much for us 45 years ago. Give those cities to me. Holy mackerel. That's grit. That's grit. What allows somebody to have that kind of grit in our spiritual life? I think it's that third characteristic. Because grit through just willpower is not what the scripture's teaching here. It's the third characteristic. He could be gritty like this because he had faith in a big God. Verse 12, it may be that the Lord so give me the giants... It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Now, when he says maybe, it may be he is not saying, Well, Joshua, somebody's got to do it, and why don't I give it a shot? Perhaps, you know, I'll get lucky, and we'll be able to defeat. Now, this is, a, this is an expression. This is an idiom. It's an expression, actually, of hopeful faith. Expectant faith, but realistic faith. It is an expression that says, "I believe we can defeat this, but I also know that it's going to be hard." After all, there's giants, and no matter where you come from, giants are not easy. You know I mean, I don't know anything about giants, but I would just side note, probably in that day I would have been a giant. Um, the average Israelite male at that time in world history was about five-2. So you know, to people who are five two. I'm a giant but we know from Goliath that he was like something like you know between seven and eight foot tall so they would have been good in the NBA um that's what they were facing right uh, it, it, essentially what he's saying here is in our language with the Lord's help I shall drive them out that's what he's saying I like what Alan Redpath, in reflecting about on uh, Joshua and Caleb and this entire exchange, he writes this, The majority measured the giants against their own strength. Caleb and Joshua measured the giants against God. The majority trembled. The two triumphed. The majority had great giants but a little God. Caleb, I love this line, read it out loud with me. Caleb had a great God and little giants. To wholly follow the Lord, church, that last sentence is huge. It's hard to wholly follow the Lord if you have great giants and a little God. But when you have faith in a big God, all the giants are little giants. Hey, a fourth requirement here, I think what you see in Caleb is a holy discontent with what it was that led him to action. Uh, Caleb, uh, Caleb didn't just point out, "Hey, there's cities over here with giants that need to be defeated." Um, hope the elders have good luck taking care of that. You know, he jumped in with both feet. He saw the need and he got involved. He didn't sit on the sidelines, refusing to engage in the world and God's work in the world. He was actively involved. This characteristic separates people who wholly follow God from those who don't. And it's been a defining characteristic of great Christians through the years that we remember to this day, and it's been missing in all the ones that we seem to forget. I mean, just almost 100 years ago, 90 years ago in Germany, the church of Germany was facing a new political leader, Adolf Hitler. And the church had a choice to make. They could either go along with him and get on the bandwagon, they could just kind of turn their face and stay above it all and ignore it and hope it went away, or they could resist. Most of the church leaders in Germany at that time chose either the first option or the second, but some, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Berth, they they chose the third. They started a, a new church movement in Germany, and they resisted what was happening, and And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was writing and speaking and imploring the other pastors and ministers in Georgia, in Germany during those years, to do the right thing, to get involved, to see the evil for what it was, and to not sit passively by. He wrote this, and it's a reminder to all of us, maybe especially who are sitting on the sidelines silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. We are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. Holy following the Lord means there are going to be times... When we are called to action and we have to shove spokes in the wheels of injustice in our community, and our civilization, we have to engage, we see what needs to be done, we see the dark areas of our city and community where people are being abused and beaten down by sin. As Christians who wholly follow the Lord, we don't have the luxury of just sitting above it all saying, well, I sure hope it gets better. Were to get involved. So there's the realities here. There's the requirements of holy following the Lord. And then finally this morning, there's the reward for holy following the Lord. Verse 13 says, Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel." God follows through with his promises, and he promises that when we wholly follow him and we obey him and commit our lives to him, he has an inheritance for us. For Caleb, it was the city of Hebron and the surrounding areas that would be his inheritance. And how fitting is it that this was what he was given by God? You see, Hebron became the de facto home of the father of faith, Abraham. In Genesis chapter 13, it's at Hebron, where God brings Abraham up on the mountain and for the first time introduces to him this idea of the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, look all around you. All of this land is going to be yours. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's in Hebron where he will plant his roots and buy a cave and bury Sarah. And he will be buried. And where the bones of Joseph will be brought back from Egypt and put into that That grave at Hebron. And Hebron, the city of the father of faith, is given to Caleb, who wholly follows the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful inheritance. What a wonderful testimony of God's faithfulness and grace to those who follow him, that the natural outsider, who somehow through God's work and God's grace became an eternal insider, ends up inheriting the land of Abraham. Caleb's experience of God's faithfulness and the inheritance he received encourages us to trust in the greater Caleb. This story is not just about Caleb. Caleb is a type of Christ. He is a a wonderful foreshadowing of Jesus, our Savior. Like Caleb, Jesus was a son of Judah. And because the Spirit of God was upon him, he too followed the Lord wholly and completely. He faced the ultimate opposition and aggression and temptations and attacks from an implacable enemy. Think about it for a moment. Caleb warred with giants who were of the earth, but Jesus warred with the great dragon of the heavenly and spiritual realms. Caleb took a a city in Canaan and threw out and cast down her giants. But Jesus, he's cast down Satan himself and is now building a city for all of us called New Jerusalem. Caleb is renowned for his heroic faith. Jesus, there's no one like him. He's the hero of our faith. He willingly did all that the Father asked of him, and in so doing, he won an eternal heavenly inheritance for all of God's people, just as the Lord had promised. Caleb, as wonderful as his earthly inheritance was, it can't hold a candle to the inheritance of those who follow holy, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our inheritance is so much better It is better because it's anchored to the work of Jesus Christ and is not dependent upon us and our own merit and our own performance and how well we do. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Just think about it for a moment. Our inheritance does not depend upon how perfectly we follow the Lord. And aren't you glad about that? Because all of us imperfectly follow the Lord. Our inheritance is based and anchored upon how perfectly Jesus followed the way of God. And that's our security. And that's our comfort. Our inheritance is so much better than Caleb's it's anchored in Jesus and His work on the cross. It's anchored in what God has done for us. Think about it. It's how much better it is that God, the Holy Spirit, now lives inside of us, in assuring us of our inheritance. Ephesians chapter one says that the whole, part of the role of the Holy Spirit is that He has been given as a deposit of our future inheritance. In other words, He is the guarantee, the first aspect of the ultimate inheritance that we will get. If you ever wonder, am I gonna get all this that is promised to me, God says, well, look at the Holy Spirit. I've given you the Holy Spirit to prove to you he's a little taste of what is to come. So much better. Better because our inheritance is eternal. I think of what Peter says in the first chapter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, You have been grieved by various trials. Do you know what Peter is saying here? He's saying the same thing we see in Joshua 14. We have this glorious presence, inheritance guaranteed to us. Now, wholeheartedly rejoice, wholeheartedly follow him. Let this encourage you as you face opposition, as you face the struggles that come from outside of life as you face very real trials in this earthly life and experience all kinds of pain because we live in a fallen world. And the longer we live, the more of that pain we experience. And he says, keep your eyes on your Savior and on the inheritance that has been guaranteed to you. So this week, church, when you experience victory, and you wholly follow the Lord, Peter says, rejoice. Know that this is because God is at work in you. You have the Holy Spirit. That's why you're wholly following the Lord. That's why you obey. That's why you say yes to grace and no to temptation. He's the guarantee of your inheritance. And this week, when you fall short, rejoice delight in your savior the true hero of your faith because his blood even covers your failures and your sin this week and his work is so complete that your eternal inheritance has not been threatened one bit even when you fall short of God's perfect will for your life how awesome is that Let it encourage you this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your promises. Promises that have been bought and purchased through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Promises that are based upon his perfect life, not our imperfect ones. This is the good news that all of us here, regardless of where we come from, can rejoice in. I pray, Father, for the one who is still in bondage to performance trying to earn your favor and grace by being good enough. Father, help them to realize they can never be good enough, but Jesus has been more than good enough on their behalf. Help them to turn to him. And those of us who follow Lord Jesus, give us the strength to follow you well this week. When we succeed, may we give glory to you, for it is only you working in us that anything good occurs. And when we fail, may we embrace you wholeheartedly, finding the grace that we help need in our time or the grace that we need in our time of help. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.